The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If they had asked him to... <laughs> go in there and and detonate a bomb that would prevent Congress from filling its duties. Uh, everyone would agree that that would not have been uh, a legislative act. And yet, by the same token, asking Pence to somehow magically rule that uh, electoral votes should be sent back to the states for further investigation was equally outside of the realm of his powers. So I don't think that they were that what Trump and company were trying to get Pence to do should be considered a legislative act and therefore under the protection of the speech or debate clause. I'm Quinta Jurassic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 22nd, 2023. Special Counsel Jack Smith has issued a subpoena to former Vice President Mike Pence as part of the investigation into Trump's role in instigating the January 6th riot. But Pence has said he'll fight the subpoena, and he's pointed to the speech or debate clause, a constitutional immunity that protects members of Congress, on the argument that he was acting as part of the legislative branch when he presided over the electoral count on January 6, 2021. Setting aside Pence's motives for taking this approach, the merits of the legal argument are less crazy than they might seem at first. I sat down with my fellow Lawfare senior editor, Molly Reynolds, to talk through these issues with two former congressional lawyers. Eric Columbus, who recently served as special litigation counsel in the House Office of General Counsel under Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and Mike Stern, a former senior counsel to the House of Representatives. It's the Lawfare podcast, February 22nd. Can the speech or debate clause shield Mike Pence from a subpoena? Let's just start off with some background. Um, Mike, can you fill us in on what's been happening with Mike Pence recently? And, you know, what's the deal with this subpoena that we're talking about today? Uh, Well, as I understand it, the special counsel, the grand jury that is working with the special counsel has issued a subpoena um, for former Vice President Pence to appear. I don't know that we know anything more than what you can sort of infer about what they want to talk to him about, but presumably that will at least include the well-known conversations that he had with Trump and with 
John Eastman, I believe, and with others, presumably in the White House, who are trying to convince him of things that he could or should do in his role as uh, president of the Senate, as he was presiding over the, uh, as he would preside over the electoral uh, vote count on January 6th. And it has been reported that he will be filing a motion to quash the subpoena based on legislative privilege. It's a little hard to say exactly how much of what has been reported comes from interpretations of the people who are reporting it and how much uh, has actually been said by Pence or his people officially, but some sort of, he's planning to raise a uh, legislative privilege to the speech or debate clause and presumably uh, and apparently not to raise executive privilege in response to, to the subpoena. So Pence has raised executive privilege before in a different investigation into January 6th, and this was the January 6th committee's investigation. Eric, would you be able to just give our listeners an overview just based on the public reporting about what happened there, the sort of the the story of um, that subpoena and Pence refusing to comply with it? Sure. The January 6th committee, for obvious reasons, was very interested in talking to uh, Mike Pence. I, I do not know if the committee formally issued a subpoena to him. Uh, they might not have gotten to that point, but they did try, as, as I can say, because it's been publicly reported, to get him to come in uh, and talk. And he uh, declined, and he said it would be inappropriate for uh, the legislative branch to come in and basically haul off, haul into Congress uh, the vice president, which which is kind of a, a somewhat different spin from what he's trying to put on it now. Yeah. So um, you both sort of mentioned different indications by Pence about not wanting to comply with requests for his testimony in the in the case of the subpoena from the special counsel. It, it is a subpoena. Um, in the case of the efforts to get him to uh, testify before the January 6th committee, um, it was not. And so maybe just to start with, like Mike Pence doesn't have to take this approach and raise these legal questions. He could simply comply with the subpoena. Um, do either of you have thoughts on sort of why he's chosen to go down this path? Like, does he just feel really, really strongly about the need for judicial resolution of whether the speech or debate clause applies to the vice president? Like, what's the what's the broader context here? It's it's politics, I think. Uh, if Mike Pence really felt strongly about the principle here, then he would have stood up and made a fuss when his chief of staff and counsel. Uh, testified before the grand jury uh, last summer, according to press reports. Uh, Mark Short and Greg Jacob testified, and there is no indication that Mike Pence tried to stop that at all. Uh, and he certainly didn't go public about it, as he's doing right now. So the, the principle in the, in the speech or debate clause legislative immunity context is really the same. If the principle is protected, principle with PAL uh, is protected by the speech or debate clause, then his aides are as well to the extent that they're working with him on the uh, legislative activity that is protected by it. 
So this is clearly just politics by Pence. He, he's trying to run against Trump without really running against Trump and trying to walk that tightrope. And God bless him, but it's a very difficult one to walk. Mike, do you have any thoughts here? So I, I really don't know. Uh, I, I, I agree. So I agree with Eric that Pence is making a choice to raise this privilege, which is, there's nothing obligating him to do that to the extent that he has a speech or debate privilege or something analogous to it. He certainly should be free to waive it. He's not under the rules of the Senate, which arguably could require, if he were a senator, he arguably would have an obligation to get permission from the Senate under some circumstances. I assume that that's not playing any role in his, I don't think that applies, and I'm sure that's not playing any role in his thinking here. So it is politics in some sense, I agree. What exactly his strategy is, is it because is he just doesn't want to testify at all? Does he want to show that he put up a fight? Does he perhaps want a different forum uh, to be able to testify? I really have no idea. And I can, all I can say is that from a legal standpoint, I think by raising this, it gives him a lot of optionality <laughs> in terms of where he might be able to go. So maybe that's his thinking, but I, that's as far as I can opine on it. So let's get into the, the legal weeds here. Mike, let me start with you. Can you just tell us about the speech or debate clause? What is it and why is Pence invoking it? So the speech or debate clause is a provision of the Constitution that basically says for any speech or debate, they, the meaning the senators and representatives, uh, shall not be questioned in any other place. That clause has given rise to a privilege uh, that is recognized in the courts. It is, it is different than you might think of executive privilege and other governmental privileges that protect confidentiality. That's not really the purpose or point of the speech or debate clause. And there's, in fact, some dispute in the case law whether it uh, even does have an, a non-disclosure element of it. But to the extent that it does, it's really kind of a just an offshoot of the of the way the clause works. So basically what it says is when you're in that clause, you cannot be quite well, for the people who are protected by that clause and the things that are protected by that clause, you cannot be questioned outside of Congress. And so question could include things like being put on trial, right? So being sued or being criminally prosecuted. And it also includes being hauled before a grand jury and literally questioned. But the questioning that's referred to in the in the clause itself is really not so much, I don't think of it so much as being questioning in the sense of discovery, but rather questioning in the sense of being held accountable or held to account outside of Congress for those things. So it's almost like a jurisdictional um, provision that says that for these things, Congress is the sole place that can discuss them or have any kind of consequences for them. And so the question is, is Pence protected by this 
uh, clause since he's not, in fact, a senator or a representative. And then if he is, are the things that he's special counsel wants to talk to him about, or do they fall within the, the speech or debate provision of that clause? And speech or debate has been read very broadly. It's not just speech on the floor, but there's a whole test for what constitutes, what falls within what they call the legislative sphere. Unfortunately, a lot of the times that test is not so clear, and this is a very unusual, indeed unique Situation. So trying to apply that test to this situation is, at least for me, extremely challenging. Maybe Eric will help us out on that. <laughs> yeah, Eric, please. Well, it, it is a very odd case and probably uh, a one-off. I mean, I think we should certainly hope that it's a one-off. It does not seem likely that the situation will ever recur where you have uh, the government investigating, criminally investigating a former president for his efforts to overturn an election and enlisting uh, the vice president in the vice president's legislative capacity to help uh, him do that. Uh, that's just something that would have struck us as absurd before January 6, uh, 2021. And I, I think would strike us as absurd even now, not that there aren't dangers, but the dangers that they come from other places. So I think courts will be likely to try to find a way to, if this gets litigated, uh, likely to try to find a way to tiptoe around it without kind of making some huge uh, pronouncements that could affect more kind of run-of-the-mill speech or debate cases. I mean, the old legal axiom, hard cases make bad law. I would add to that, that, that rare cases also make bad law. You don't want to establish broader principles based upon really weird uh, scenarios. Yeah, so we're going to get into a couple of the sort of things that you each brought up, but I want to start with what's sort of a little bit of an existential question. And Mike, I know you've written about this recently, but on the face of it, there's a simple rebuttal to Penn's argument, which is the clause refers to senators and representatives. The vice president is obviously not a senator or representative. Like, why isn't that the end of the discussion? And how should we think about kind of the the history of the vice presidency and its legislative responsibilities? And kind of how does that relate to what we're talking about here? So there's really two aspects of that, right? So one is, what is the vice presidency? And by extension, what are the subjects that the special counsel wants to ask former Vice President Pence about? Now, I, so I have I have been trying to sort of puzzle this whole thing in my mind for the last few days, and I sort of have a rubric that doesn't get me to an answer, but I think at least for me is helpful about how to think about the question. So. I, I see it as there being three possibilities. One is that Pence is an executive, is a, in essence an executive branch official, and therefore everything that he does in his official capacity should be considered executive in nature. And I think Andy McCarthy has a piece in National Review that basically says this, and some other people have said this. And that's sort of, certainly how the vice president is thought of sort of popularly. Uh, I 
posted something on my blog, which indicates that I don't think that's right. That if you look at the, na- the, the actual constitutional functions of the vice president, he does not fit comfortably in the executive branch. He might be partially in the executive branch, uh, or he might be completely outside any of the branches, but his major constitutional responsibilities are in fact in the legislative branch. And there's a quote from a 1961 OLC opinion that says, perhaps the best thing that can be said is that the vice president belongs neither to the executive nor to the legislative branch, but is attached to the constitution by the constitution to the latter for what good that does. So that's, so that's, so one possibility, which I tend to reject is that he's, he should be considered completely executive. Another possibility, which has some intellectual appeal, I think, which is that he's, he's not any of these branches. He's a completely different animal. And therefore, whatever privilege or immunity applies to him needs to be invented from whole cloth. That has some appeal, I think probably not to the lower courts. <laughs> uh, maybe if this gets to the Supreme Court, they might want to take a look at that. But I think as a practical matter, probably not something that the lower courts are going to want to do. And so that leaves the third possibility, which is some of the things he does are executive, some are legislative, and some are neither, such as things that he might do in his political capacity as a candidate for, as he was actually, after all, candidate in this election that he was, he's going to be asked about. Uh, And my sense is that probably the courts will most likely look at it that way and then want to know what precisely he's going to be asked about. And because it, it may very well be that some of the things that he's going to be asked about fall within each of those three buckets, it will be difficult to decide this question without actually going on a question by question basis, which would require him to actually go before the grand jury. And then uh, if he objects to a question or he goes out and consults with his lawyer, uh, they will have to take those on a question by question basis to the judge. But that's kind of the way I am thinking about it. But assuming, as I think we should, that a substantial amount of what the grand jury wants to hear about involves specifically his legislative capacity. That is what he was doing or what he's being asked to do as the president of the Senate. I do think there is a substantial question. It's certainly not anything that has been has been decided by any court that I'm aware of, although it has been raised. So there's a, you know, it's a perfectly reasonable position for him to take with respect to those legislative functions that he is protected by the speech or debate clause. And in fact, both the Senate legal counsel and the Department of Justice have argued that the vice president in certain contexts is protected by the speech or debate clause. And it's true that the clause does not, you know, specifically talks about senators and representatives. And obviously, so on a literal basis, you can say it doesn't apply to him. To him. Uh, I'll just mention a quote from a Supreme Court case, uh, United States v. Gravel, where, where, where the court says it is true that the clause itself mentions only senators and representatives, but prior cases have plainly not taken a literalistic approach 
in applying the privilege. In that case, they were dealing with staff and whether the privilege could protect staff, and they said that it could. But I think you could make the same argument. Doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're entitled to win, but I think it's a reasonable argument to say that the clause should be construed to include the vice president as well. Yes, I'm, I'm very glad that you referenced the Gravel case. So for listeners who aren't familiar, this has to do with Alaska Senator Mike Gravel's decision to read the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record and then uh, get the assistance of a staffer to have them printed as well by a private printer. And this ended up going up to the Supreme Court when uh, there was a grand jury investigation into the whole thing. So it's a delightful <laughs> little interlude. So Eric, I want to go to you and ask about an argument that I've seen a few people make, which is that Pence wasn't really engaging in a legislative act under the terms of the speech or debate clause on January 6th because his role in overseeing the electoral count was purely ministerial and didn't allow for any actual decision making. And this is actually the substance of Pence's dispute with Trump, that Trump is trying to get him to sort of exercise his own decisions and reject the count. And Pence says, you know, I'm, I'm essentially a rubber stamp. And so in this argument, that puts him outside the scope of the clause's immunity. I'm curious what you make of that argument. Well, I've, I think, made that argument myself a couple of days ago in a, in a tweet. And I, I using the, the podcaster's privilege of, of not necessarily agreeing with everything that I have ever said, even if it's within the same week. I think it is is perhaps a close call. I think there are elements of what the vice president was allowed to do that were could have been slightly more than ministerial. For example, in 1960, there were complete competing slates in the state of Hawaii that were, unlike in 2020, that were offered in good faith. It had to do with uh, outcomes of a recount. It didn't matter for, as it turned out for the election, and so the uh, the vice president, who just happened to be uh, the losing presidential candidate, uh, Richard Nixon, decided to count the votes for uh, John Kennedy. And his ruling could have been overturned by the House and the Senate uh, acting collectively. Now, that situation did not present itself uh, in 2020, and there was not really a chance of it uh, presenting itself. So, it's hard to say that Pence's role on January 6th was entirely or could not have been within the realm of legislative acts. But at the same time, the issues that Trump and his minions wanted to talk to Pence about were, in my view, outside of the realm of that, because they were basically asking him to do things that he had no capacity to do. Like if they had asked him to <laughs> go in there and and detonate a bomb that would prevent Congress from filling its duties, uh, everyone would agree that that would not have been uh, a legislative act. And yet, by the same token, asking Pence to somehow magically rule that uh, electoral votes should be sent back to the states for further investigation was equally outside of the realm of his powers. So I don't think that they were that what Trump and company were trying to get Pence to do should be considered a legislative act and therefore under the protection of the speech or debate clause. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work 
of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, so Mike, I'm curious for your thoughts there, both both about the sort of ministerial argument and on the broader point that Eric made. Yeah, so I'm the ministerial part of it, I am not persuaded by, and Eric gave some of the reasons why, uh, but I'm not sure that even if, even if his role is entirely ministerial or that is the view. I mean, my personal view, based on the con- the actual Constitution, is that his role is ministerial, and so is the the and the role of the Congress is actually less than ministerial. They're just there to watch. But historically, that has not been the way that the clause Twelfth uh, Amendment has been interpreted, and so I don't think even if a court were in the court's going to decide that the scope of the speech or debate clause depends on whether or not it thinks that that's, you know, whether his role is ministerial or not. But under the practice of the Congress, the president of the Senate does have a role that is more than just opening the, the votes because he presides and he can recognize members from the floor to make objections and he rules on whether the objections are proper or not. And so, I mean, that does not seem to me to be wholly ministerial. So I don't, I don't think that part of it is where I would go if I were trying to defeat the speech or debate clause. I do think that the question of whether the importuning, if for want of a better word, by the president falls within the legislative sphere is a is certainly an open question. And I don't know whether I would would I would measure that by whether what the president was asking to do was arguably legal or clearly illegal or not, because I think the speech or debate clause, when it applies, applies regardless of whether the illegality is involved or unconstitutionality or not. The right question, I think, is whether conversations by the with the vice president from outside the Congress or outside the Senate, perhaps, about his legislative duties, are those protected by the speech or debate clause? And if so, under what circumstances? Uh, and you could certainly argue, I mean, there's certainly case law that you could use to argue that it's not protected. I think this is something Eric and I discussed earlier, which is there's case law that says if a, if a member receives a bribe, right, and in response to the bribe agrees to perform a legislative act, the court has held that's not protected. And part of the reason for that is that the giving of the bribe is not a legislative act, but also the court has said that the 
agreement to perform a future legislative act is not the same thing as a legislative act, which is a little bit of a semantic distinction that doesn't make a lot of sense uh, and isn't necessarily, I think, observed outside that context of the bribery. But you could certainly argue that what Trump was trying to do was something analogous to bribery, uh, and therefore it should be viewed the same way. But you could also argue, no, this is this is no different than when anybody comes to a member and says, I want you to do this or that or the other thing. It may be something that they can't constitutionally do, but that should be considered this part of the legislative process nonetheless. So I'm not sure, <laughs> but I don't think the minute, I, I, I don't think the ministerial act is where I would draw the line. Yeah. I have to say the question of, you know, whether or not we can answer this issue by analogizing Trump's actions to bribery is giving me serious flashbacks to the first impeachment um, and his, his conduct over Ukraine, but that's an issue for a different time. So I do want to drill in a little more on this question of how we define what constitutes a legislative act and how far out that could go. I think we've gotten to that a little bit, but maybe one one way I've been kind of conceptualizing it is that if you imagine it in kind of concentric circles and at the at the bullseye is, you know, Pence on the Senate floor on January 6th presiding over the electoral count. That seems to me, if I understand correctly, pretty clearly within the scope of uh, the speech or debate clause. And then if you go out in concentric circles, there's, you know, conversations that he has about that on the day of, then even farther out conversations he has about that, you know, in the weeks and months ahead of time. So I guess my question to both of you is, if you have any sense of, you know, how far out this can extend, is there a an obvious place where it stops? Um, or is that really untested as well? I, I don't think it's obvious. I, I think that let me just let me read the language from Gravel, the Gravel case in the Supreme Court about what a legislative act is, uh, which is <laughs> somewhat nebulous, but useful as a starting point. Legislative acts are not all encompassing. The heart of the clause is speech or debate in either house. Insofar as the clause is construed to reach other matters, they must be an integral part of the deliberative and communicative processes by which members participate in committee and house proceedings with respect to the consideration and passage or rejection of proposed legislation or with respect to other matters which the Constitution places within the jurisdiction of either house. So that doesn't answer the question specifically, but it does suggest that if, for example, Pence is huddling with with senators discussing how he should resolve things on January 6th, that seems to be pretty close to uh, a legislative act and, and, and probably is on, on that side because they are in a process together that for January 6th and they are kind of discussing how to go about doing that. Getting somewhat farther afield, maybe, is Pence talking to his aides about what to do. Pence talking to uh, Greg Jacob and Mark Short. Uh, and that, that, might be, that might be covered, though it's a little bit farther away, especially as you get farther away in time, if, if, it's, if it's weeks beforehand. The, I think where we are trying to figure out now with Trump is Trump is a third party. Trump has, has no role in the January 6th proceedings. 
Trump has the fact that Trump is president is uh, irrelevant uh, at this point for January 6th. He is involved January 6th as a presidential candidate. And so he is in effect trying to lobby Pence to act in a, in a certain and inappropriate way. And that does not seem to me to fall under the protection of the speech or debate clause. Now, some might now you've got obviously two sides of a conversation. You've got Trump's side and Pence's side. Asking Pence what Trump said and did, what Eastman, what John Eastman said and did, seems to me to be clearly not protected by the speech debate clause. Asking Pence how he responded is probably a closer call, but to me, I think would not constitute a legislative act either. Mike, I'm curious what you think. So I think that's the right question. I think that it's not at all clear whether that is, I agree that Trump should be essentially for purposes of analysis considered just like anybody else, um, whether it was a constituent or some interest group or somebody who wants, in this case, the vice president to do something as the president of the Senate, is that protected as part of, as Eric said, the integral part of the deliberative and communicative processes by which members participate in, in this case, I think it would be other matters with the constitution places within the jurisdiction of either house. And I don't think it's clear whether it is or not. It's interesting. The house is apparently moving or supporting Congressman Perry in moving to get his cell phone back or prevent the Justice Department from looking at his cell phone. Uh, that's something they've done in other cases. And I, I'm i not sure, but I think the position that they would take generally is that his discussion with people, regardless of whether they're other members or anyone about leg- legislative matters, should be protected. And that may not be right, but I think that's the position that the House would probably take. And so there is certainly an argument that when someone, whether it's the president or anyone else, is trying to lobby Pence to do something in his capacity as the president of the Senate, that that is within the protection of the privilege. But I don't think it's settled one way or the other. So um, I want to sort of take us in a slightly different direction here and just say that I think for folks who don't spend all of their time thinking about the United States Congress, so obviously not the four of us, but other people, part of what's a little bit odd about this conversation is that we have Pence arguing on one hand that he was acting as part of the legislative branch and so can't answer questions from the special counsel because he's protected by the speech or debate clause. But then also that he's arguing in a different venue that he's a member of the executive branch and can't answer questions from the January 6th committee and is asserting executive privilege. So sort of that heads I win, tails you lose kind of formulation. So I want to 
talk a little bit about the difference between the speech or debate clause and executive privilege. And so, for example, we know that executive privilege is not absolute. Um, it has to yield before grand jury investigations, and we've seen that happen um, with the broader January 6th investigation. Is the same true of the speech or debate immunity? Could the special counsel force Peds to testify even if the speech or debate clause applies? Um, Mike, I don't know if you want to go first. I think no. Where it applies, it is absolute. So it's not like executive privilege. It's also not a confidentiality privilege. So it doesn't really matter that what he wants to ask him about might be public or Pence might have already talked about it. Uh, It's not about protecting, unlike the executive privilege, which is designed specifically to protect confidential communications. uh, The speech or debate clause is not about that. As I said, it's just, it's kind of sort of incidental that it provides this non-disclosure privilege. It's really about saying, I, I am not subject to your jurisdiction on these matters. Yeah, I agree with that. And in the Gravel case, which involved a grand jury, uh, there was no indication by the Supreme Court that the privilege would some in any way turned on on the fact that their criminal proceedings was involved. And the DC Circuit has quashed subpoenas issued to legislators by coming from grand juries investigating their behavior. So that's pretty settled. One could, you know, anything is possible and one could imagine somehow a court trying to uh, apply a somewhat different role where the vice president is involved, but I, I don't think that's very likely. So continuing this sort of discussion of the difference between executive privilege and speech or debate, executive privilege can be waived or the president can decline to invoke it. And we, we've we seen the latter. President Biden took that approach to the January 6th committee's investigation in many cases. Is the same true of speech or debate immunity? Can that be waived? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a, I think it's, it's, it's an unsettled question as to whether it can be waived in a lawsuit against a congressional entity. But it's, I'd like to hear Mike's view on this, but it seems to me that it certainly can be waived in its testimonial aspects when someone wants to testify before a court. Yeah, it certainly can be waived in the sense that he doesn't have to assert it. And I think he can go and testify and they're not going to sui sponte prevent him. No one's going to, although sort of ironically, Judge, Judge Nichols sort of did that in the case Eric could probably talk about, um, but but I think not. In, I don't think even in that case that that idea would apply here. So he could certainly go and testify. The question whether it can be waived in the sense of forfeiting the right, his ability to assert the right in the future, uh, is I think that's what Eric is referring to as being unsettled. And and I and I think that's right. But I don't think it's really an issue here yet because he hasn't done anything that would waive it. I think there is a question that, in my mind, whether the Senate could waive the privilege here if it does apply to him, and that might depend in part on what exactly the type of privilege turns out to be because we're. we're we're assuming that he's treated exactly like a senator. And I think even in the case of a senator, there's some question about whether the Senate could waive the privilege. But he might not be exactly like a senator. He might be treated 
more like an officer of the Senate, uh, in which case certainly the Senate could waive it. So I think that is an issue. Just sort of circling back, if I can, to the question about what he did in the January 6th committee, which I guess we don't really know exactly what it was he said. My guess would be he said something like, as the vice president, I am not subject to being called to testify before Congress, right? So not so much exactly executive privilege, but more like something more like absolute immunity, which is another thing that the executive branch has asserted. Historically, neither presidents nor vice presidents have been compelled by Congress to come and testify in any proceedings. There is a the position of the executive branch, at least as to former presidents, and I'm guessing probably as to former vice presidents, that that would apply to them as well. Uh, so my guess is he asserted something like that. I do think there's a certainly a tension between that and the legislative immunity that he now wants to assert, but it's not exactly one or the other. There, it's sort of a somewhat apples and oranges. I think he's wrong about the absolute immunity, regardless of whether he has the legislative privilege. But I guess one thing I would say is he's got to be accountable somewhere. <laughs> so if he cannot be accountable in court because he has the speech or debate privilege, therefore it must follow, in my opinion, that he's accountable in the Senate because the speech or debate privilege specifically applies to any other place. And if if it's somehow his position is, I don't have to testify before the January 6th committee because that's the House, and I don't have to testify before the grand jury because I'm the president of the Senate, and I don't have to testify before the Senate because I have absolute immunity, there's got to be something wrong there. <laughs> that, that, that one thing I'm, I'm sure about. And that's basically, uh, I mean, Pence hasn't said it in those words, but he said in, in September, and it, it, quoting, he said, quote, the Congress has no right to my testimony. We have a separation of powers under the Constitution of the United States. It would establish a terrible precedent for Congress to summon a vice president of the United States to speak about deliberations that took place at the White House. So that, you know, he's, he seems to be trying to have it both ways. And, uh, you know, that's not necessarily relevant in terms of how a court would address a specific speech or debate clause challenge that he raises. But judges are humans, and in the back of their mind, they will can't help but think that Pence has tried to have it both ways, and that might nudge them uh, against his position. I mean, I think it, I think it is relevant. I mean, if, if his position is, I don't, I cannot be questioned about legislative matters in the grand jury. I think the court would certainly want to know from his lawyers, well, can he be questioned somewhere else? Or is he, you know, sort of uniquely immune from being questioned anywhere? Cause he's a, vice president who claims he doesn't have to testify before Congress. He doesn't have to testify before the grand jury because he's, because it was legislative matters. He's a former vice president. So perhaps he can't be impeached. He's just totally immune from being held accountable or questioned anywhere. 
uh, about this matter of the highest national significance, I think a court is going to have a serious problem with that. But I'm not sure. I think he could plausibly say, well, what I meant to say was the House can't make me testify. But I didn't say that about the Senate. And so one question I have is whether we could just avoid this issue altogether if special counsel Jack Smith can craft a set of questions that steers clear of the speech or debate issue. I'm thinking now that the the answer may be no, uh, based on what you both previously said about how the borders of what's covered by speech or debate are really ambiguous. But is there is there any way in your view that the special counsel could get around this? Or are they just going to have to make the tough decision about whether they want to stick it out and litigate it or just drop the effort to talk to Pence. Yeah, I was that might depend on what Pence himself is comfortable with. Uh, is Pence's goal to just be seen waving the flag and uh, then be willing to submit to uh, a significant bit of questioning? Or does he want to be seen as resisting this uh, to the last uh, drop of blood and challenging it to the bitter end because he can make and his arguments will be stronger or weaker depending upon what Jack, how Jack Smith chooses if he does choose to limit the the scope of questioning of Pence but Pence could still challenge it uh, regardless I mean it seems to me that the most important things that Smith would want to ask him about would be covered by this speech debate privilege or the privilege that he that Spence is, wants to assert. But there are things that he plausibly might want to ask him about that would not be. I mean, presumably Pence was in the White House the entire period from, from the election to January 6th, but also even before the election and would have knowledge about things that uh, would not have anything to do necessarily with his uh, status as, as the president of the Senate, but would have knowledge about the campaign's views of the election and whether there was any evidence of election fraud and whether Trump or others around him thought there was actual election fraud and, you know, what he might have about the, he may have knowledge about the various cases that were filed. I I believe Pence was a plaintiff on some of those cases, or at least it was the campaign that Pence presumably was part of. So you could certainly want to ask him, well, did you, you know, did you agree with this? Did you believe it or, or, or things like that? He may have knowledge about the fake elector scheme and all kinds of other things related to, you know, related to this whole January 6th investigation that are not necessarily directly tied to, to his role uh, on January 6th. But I think it would be hard for Smith to get core of what he's looking for without overcoming this privilege. So I want to ask one question that gets at something that, Mike, you alluded to a couple of times in sort of different ways, which has to do the fact that up until now, the litigation that we've seen involving Congress and the broad set of issues related to January 6th has really involved the House. Um, here, though, we're talking about the Senate. And Mike, you both mentioned the question of, you know, could the Senate choose to waive 
the speech or debate uh, immunity for Pence. You also mentioned a case where the the House is um, uh, supporting uh, Representative Perry's attempt to get his phone back. Um, But just generally, Mike, maybe um, to you first, are there differences in how the two chambers tend to get involved in litigation? And do those matter at all for what we might see in the context of this dispute? Yeah, well, there definitely are differences in how uh, the chambers get involved in litigation. In the House, it's fairly straightforward. Eric obviously has more recent experience, but uh, basically there's a bipartisan legal advisory group that can authorize the House counsel to get involved in cases. In the Senate, it basically requires either unanimous consent, or at least unanimous consent among the leadership, or a actual vote of the Senate, which is not normally not something that they are going to be interested in doing. So uh, Senate legal counsel would not be getting involved unless there is bipartisan agreement, basically, in the Senate for them to do so. Now, somebody in the Senate could introduce a resolution and try to get a debate going that way, either on the Senate Legal Council being involved or on the question of whether Pence should be allowed to assert this privilege or, you know, whether Pence should be required to come to the Senate to answer questions. Any any of those things are conceivable in, that could happen in the Senate, or at least someone could start that debate going. Then you have the whole question of, you know, trying to close the debate. But but uh, in terms of it is much more difficult to get Senate legal counsel involved than it is House counsel. So I want to close by asking both of you for your predictions on just how much this resistance from Pence might gum up the special counsel's investigation. We've seen plenty of cases in in which there were years and years of litigation over these questions of executive privilege and whether or not an absolute immunity, whether or not someone could be held before Congress to testify. Are we going to see the same thing here? Mike, over to you. Well, so the thing about the speech and debate clause is that it can be appealed immediately. And we saw that with Lindsey Graham. So presumably, so Pence will file a motion to quash. My prediction would be that the uh, chief judge will either deny it or say that it can't be decided, except, as I mentioned before, on a question-by-question basis. But at that point, Pence can appeal to the D.C. Circuit Assuming the D.C. Circuit, you know, that will take some time. Uh, Assuming the D.C. Circuit rules against him, he can uh, try to get the Supreme Court involved. So he can certainly draw this out for months, not necessarily years, I wouldn't think. So that's part of the optionality that I referred to earlier, which is at some point he's got to figure out, you know, what he wants to do and the timing of when it it will work best for him. Uh, and I just have no idea what his thinking would be on that. But if, if his thought is to, I mean, it could be just theoretically, I have no reason to believe this is the case, but it could be that he wants his testimony to be even more dramatic, right? And he would like to kick it down the road six months. So it's more in the middle of presidential primary season. 
I don't know that's the case, but I mean, he does have the ability, I think, regardless of whether he gets any judge to agree with him to put this off for some a matter of months anyway. Eric, what's your take? Well, I think that the other mind we need to get inside of is is the special counsels. And I, I really have no idea how essential he feels uh, Mike Pence's testimony is. And certainly if it looks like it's going to uh, occupy a year, then he's not going to go for it. And, and, and that probably is also the case if it would take six months to resolve. These cases can move very quickly. Uh, the case we litigated involving trying to obtain President Trump's official White House documents uh, over his executive privilege claim, that went uh, from district court to the Supreme Court in, I, I believe, a matter of two or three months. That may or may not be acceptable for Jack Smith. Uh, he also, we know, we rather, it's been reported that he also has subpoenaed Mark Meadows and uh, Meadows almost surely will resist that, and there will probably be executive privilege claims interposed by Trump there, so that may take a while. Uh, And if Smith is already waiting for Meadows, he may decide to wait for Pence as well, so so we don't know uh, how long that would would take. There's one additional point I'd like to make about just the overall nature of the purpose of the speech or debate clause and how that may or may not come into play and how courts will look at this. There's Stepping back, the, the speech or debate clause is – there's very little legislative history on it. It was not, was not discussed in the Constitutional Convention, but it is something that has a, a, a pedigree, if you will, in, uh, in England and that comes out of fights between the crown and parliament dating back to the 17th century. And parliament did not like being stepped on and wanted to preserve its own uh, independence. And the speech debate clause is a separation of powers principle that is designed to protect the legislature against uh, encroachments by the executive branch and the judicial branch. So there's something uh, kind of rich here, if you will, about using Pence trying to use the speech debate clause to limit an investigation into an attack, both figurative and uh, sadly extremely literal uh, on Congress itself by the sitting president of the United States. And you know that doesn't map on directly to, to doctrine over how the speech or debate clause has been applied, but it's something that's got to be in the back of the mind of, of judges. And it's something that DOJ could, could note uh, in, in a, serious way, but with a hint of irony also, of pointing out the, the very perverse implications of ruling for Mike Pence in this situation. I think that's a great note to end on. Mike and Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Quinta. Thank you, Molly. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter patreon.com backslash lawfare, where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pachahowell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.